Welcome to another episode of the Triple F Podcast. I'm pleased to be joined today by Sabil from Roadmap to Retire. Sabil, welcome to the show. Hi, Jade. Thank you for having me. Sabil, you've uh, been an active dividend growth investor since 2013. Can you share with us how you got started with your blog and what the catalyst was to pursue early financial independence? Yeah, um, I started Roadmap to Retire, in 20, as you said, in 2013. And uh, initially it was just as a, I started it as a mean to share my story with the world and essentially develop my writing skills as I was doing that. Originally when I started, I had I was a little nervous because I figured, well, what do I have to offer to the world that nobody else is offering? But as I started writing more and more, I felt people were actually interested in listening to my story and seeing my perspective on things related to investing. Um, it's been a great experience so far. It's been three years, almost three years, and I've, I've enjoyed the journey of blogging every single day. As someone who started the blog myself in 2012, I've kind of always been curious to know how other bloggers are doing it. For me, um, I used to blog mostly after work. I mean, that was like the only time I, I really had available throughout the day. And, you know, sometimes I, I read these other bloggers and they all have full-time jobs. They're really busy. So I was just kind of curious where you find the time and the bandwidth to service the blog because I know it is a lot of labor of love. Yeah. Um, luckily for me, I have I seem to be able to switch between back and forth between work and blogging. I do most of my writing in the evenings and on the weekends, but I still stay online and respond to comments during the day during business hours. My job has been pretty flexible over the course of the last few years. I, uh, by the way, I work in the tech industry, so I'm in front of a computer all day long. So it allows me to at least take a peek. Uh, just make sure if somebody has any questions, I answer them right away and even respond to comments on my blog. So when you say tech industry, I'm guessing that comprises of kind of working the nine to five rat race, uh, quote unquote, as we usually like to call it. Yeah, although I don't like to use the term rat race. Um, essentially, yes, you're right. I do work a nine to five job, but I, I still have a lot of flexibility. So I, I can work from home whenever I want. So a couple of days a week, I just stay home and work from home instead. But most of the time, I'm usually at work, yeah. So what got you interested in the whole concept of early financial independence? Well, I think originally, I started reading some blogs out there. A um, couple of blogs that originally uh, I started following and that come to mind are blogs like uh, Passive Income Pursuit, run by JC out in Texas my own advisor who's based here in Ottawa where I currently live. So they had laid out their plans of reaching financial independence through dividend investing and it really spoke to me personally and before that time I started uh, investing in high growth stocks and losing money because I I was investing in uh, expensive fee mutual funds. And when I started reading up these blogs I realized the power of dividend investing and it I've never looked back since, and my my passive income through dividend investing has been growing every single month after I started subscribing to this idea. And the whole concept of financial independence uh, was fairly new to me when I started the blog. Interestingly enough, a lot of people quote uh, Dividend Mantra as their one of the first blogs that they follow, but I hadn't discovered it until I started my own blog and in and few months into it. And 
while I was reading that story, I discovered the whole financial independence and early retirement. I was on board with that. What was it about dividend growth investing that you would say appealed the most to you? Was it the idea that you know you're kind of planting the seeds of you know this uh, perpetually growing income stream that regardless of what the markets did, that income would keep kind of coming in like clockwork and keep growing on a regular basis? Exactly. Um, I, like I said, I was investing in these high growth companies, um, usually through mutual funds. And it was all about timing the market. And I knew at, a, at some level that I couldn't time the market properly at any time. And more often than not, I was losing money. When I first dabbled into stocks as well, I was chasing um, all these growth stocks. And and as I started discovering the idea of dividend growth investing, I really liked the concept where I don't really care what the market is doing, whether it's up or down. The only thing I care about is my income and a growing income over time. Eventually, when I do reach um, either early retirement or retirement, I want to keep my principal invested while living off those dividends. So you don't necessarily prescribe to that classical 4% rule where you just acquire this huge nest egg by the time you retire, you basically draw it down until it's depleted to zero. No, um, I think 4% rule made sense back in the day when interest rates were much higher. In these times, you investing in bond funds and depending on that income is not going to cut it. And unfortunately, just the way that things are right now, we have to invest in dividend growing companies. Invest, uh, interest rates might go up in the future and they might I might jump back into investing more into bonds. But at the moment, I just don't see the point of investing in such funds. For someone new starting out, how do they get started with dividend growth investing? I know the sector as a whole is very broad, and even amongst the investors in the dividend growth community, there's not always this consensus agreement on you know what the best practices are to go about it. If you were somebody new and you just wanted to get started and educated, where would you begin? Yeah, my recommendation would be to starting off um, mostly in high-quality blue-chip companies that have a proven record. So companies which have been around for 50, 100 years, who've been paying dividends for decades uh, and have been growing those dividends year after year. I know it's some of these companies may not be sexy enough to um, that you can talk with your buddy over a beer somewhere, but these are boring companies uh, which have been around paying dividends. So look at established companies such as Johnson & Johnson, Coca-Cola, companies like that who have been around. The businesses are easy to understand. And that's my one um, mantra when I'm trying to invest is I never try to invest in companies where I do not understand the business model. So if a company, I, I need to understand how a company is generating its revenue and its earnings. And you really can't break it down any more simple than Coca-Cola, right? I mean, that's kind of a exactly. cult symbol, yeah. if you will, in, in our world where basically any country that you go to, I mean, everybody understands Coca-Cola. Exactly. And all you need to do is just look at your own life and see where you're spending your money. What are you doing on a day-to-day -day basis? Are you going out and eating food? Invest in food companies. Are you paying your bills? Invest in utility companies. That's the way I look at it. 
that's actually a great point as well, because that's something that's kind of unheralded with investing is, you know, in times of volatility, some of these more boring, um, like you said, less sexy companies, they actually will hold up a lot better and, and outperform because they are so stable. Exactly. Um, so every single time there is a financial crisis or a recession, and recession is just a part of the economic cycle. So it's not a matter of if there is a recession, it's just a matter of when. So right now we haven't seen a recession over the last, how, how long has it been? Six, seven years? Just about. Almost eight years. It's just a matter of when the next recession hits us. And in those times, investors will always rush towards safe havens companies or other assets. So investors will always rush and pay their um, utility bills. So in, they go to utility companies or go to consumer staples. So those are really good sectors to be invested in. So that's actually a, a really great segue into this very, I think, important question um, that you know we're all kind of facing because I don't think it's a secret to anybody out there right now that the markets are kind of overheated. Um, like you mentioned, we are seven years into this expansion recovery cycle. When you're formulating your strategy and kind of your thesis on what companies to to purchase, is that something that crosses your mind? Uh, because I know some people they prefer to take the uh, you know dollar cost average. You just buy you know shares of these companies on a regular basis. You don't really try to time the market per se. Um, is that also your own strategy, or are you also more cognizant of the fact? you know, at this time, maybe valuations might be um, a little stretched. Yeah, um, valuations do seem a little stretched in, in most places. There are maybe a couple of different sectors where you might find better value than others. But at the same time, it's really hard to know where exactly things are. Um, and it's almost impossible to time the market right. So just off the top of my head, as an example, people were saying, in 2013, things were getting too heated up and we were in for a big bear market right around the corner. That never happened. 2013 was a great year. 2014 was also a great year. Um, so I think the best course of action for an investor is to stay completely well diversified across all sectors and maintain a solid portfolio. And if you think that you wouldn't want to hold a stock during a recession, you shouldn't be holding it going into an expansion or in the late stages of an expansion. So would you say, you know, a company like Coca-Cola or Procter & Gamble right now where, um, like you said, there, there is a lot of money moving into these stocks because they are safe havens, would, would now be a good time to get into these stocks? Or are you being maybe more selective? You're trying to find value elsewhere. What's, what's your focus right now? Um, I feel like those stocks are a bit expensive. Um, companies especially companies in the consumer staples. It's one of those sectors which is always popular with dividend growth investors. And unfortunately, I haven't been able to find really good uh, value in those sectors. And I, I don't think I've made a purchase in that sector over the last year or so. And companies such as Coca-Cola, Pepsi, Procter & Gamble, they're great companies. I have, I have no qualms with how the business is run at all. But you don't want to pay too much for those stocks either because your future returns will take a hit if you pay too much right now. In regards to valuations, are there any go-to metrics that you rely on the most? I know with dividend growth investing, a lot of people like to emphasize the history and the track record of the companies. Um, others are more you know, keening in on the dividend growth rate over the last, let's say, five or ten years. 
Um, other people like to look at the payout ratios because if that's stretched, then perhaps it's a sign that the company is going to have trouble in the future, you know, making payouts and, and growing the dividend. Um, or do you focus more on kind of the financials and the balance sheet, debt to income ratio, free cash flow and, and that sort? Yeah, I think you hit uh, almost all the metrics that I look at. <laughs> so I pretty much look at almost all of those metrics. So I look at the the earnings growth um, in the past and in the future, the revenue growth. I look at the balance sheets. Um, I look at how the company has been performing over the last few years, what the projected growth rate is over the next coming few years. And it's more of a judgment call once I decide if I want to invest in a company. Um, Sometimes I feel you just need to take an extra bit of risk. It also depends on where how I feel about taking on extra risk at that point in time. There are definitely companies which are which seem expense, expensive on surface, but they have a great earnings and revenue growth ahead of them. And I don't mind taking a little bit of risk on such companies. One of the last companies I bought was this company called Algonquin Power, which I think is a good example for this discussion. It appears pretty expensive on the surface because it's trading at a price-to-earnings multiple of 30 or 35 or in that region, but it has a great track record for growing its earnings over the last few years. And even looking into the future, the earnings growth is expected to continue pretty well. And in addition, they're also growing their revenue pretty well over the course of past few years and expected to continue that as well. So investors have to take some risk. Um, That's just the reality of the investing world. It's just a matter of taking the right amount of risk to get the right amount of reward for your appetite. I was curious to know what your thoughts are regarding commodities and kind of that cycle that we've experienced the last year or so, basically, where you have commodities like oil and gas, basically in a a wretched bear market, along with base metals like copper, lead and zinc. Is that something that you know, enters into the equation at all? Because I know with these type of companies, boom and bust in commodities, those are just regular occurrences. There's really nothing any of us can control. Um, But, you know, the the fundamentals always look strongest when the commodity itself is starting to get expensive and some would argue in bubble territory. So when they come crashing down like kind of oil and gas, then the, the underlying stocks, the fundamentals no longer appear as strong. So how do you How do you evaluate companies such as that? Yeah, so that's a really good question. Um, I I don't directly invest in commodities, um, but I invest in companies which deal with these commodities. So, for example, I own energy giants such as Chevron, for example, and I also invest in some gold producing uh, gold mining companies. You said it right that it's 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 part of the economic cycle that goes through its ups and it goes through its down. And right now we are caught in a bear market. But I think it's also important to remember that what's affecting these bear markets, like you have to look online and see um, the macroeconomic uh, events that are taking place. The weakened demand from China seems to be the driving force in all of these um, in, in the bear market for the commodities. And couple that with something like the strong US dollar, which is which is what these commodities are quoted in. So now you have a double whammy on these commodity prices. So I can't really put where commodities will go from here um, just because each commodity is different. But I think it's an, I think keeping an eye on the currency market might be your best option to know where exactly 
you're going. For example, I was I have been looking a lot into gold lately because the way things are positioned right now, it seems like these stock market, the bond market, they all they're all sending signals of some really bad events coming up in the in the financial world, and gold is probably where investors will run to, even though. It's been said over again and again by a lot of experts that it's a barbaric metal and it does not hold any value these days. But the flip side to that argument is gold is, on the international market at least, covered in the US dollars, which is really strong. So I, because I'm based in Canada right now, I am looking into gold as still a valid investment because gold considered and priced in Canadian dollars, I think is still going up. So for US investors, that might not be the same story. They might still see uh, the US dollar bull run continue, which might put some pressure on the commodity market, including gold. But in Canadian dollar terms, I think there's a good opportunity here for us. When you speak about investing in gold, are you referring to buying the physical precious metal itself or are you referring more so with the stocks and the mining companies? So far, I've only uh, invested using a stock in a mining company. I only own one company right now uh, called I Am Gold, which has taken quite a beating and it's stayed low for the last couple of years. But the fundamentals are still great. I continue to hold this company. And I think it's uh, bound to recover once the gold prices recover. Right now, I'm also considering either investing in another um, gold mining company or going with an ETF, which I can call to trade in physical bullion if I need to. So there are a couple of options that I dug up recently on my blog, maybe a month ago or so, where... I don't need to go buy physical gold and hold it and pay a fee to store it in a in a safety deposit box somewhere. I can buy these investment vehicles. Uh, I think they're called ETRs, exchange traded receipts. Essentially, it's as good as holding physical gold and it's backed by actual real gold. So it's not like an ETF like GLD, which is mostly supposed to be a gold investment vehicle, but it's all just base, basically paper contracts. I think the one that I know off the top of my head that is backed, it's the uh, the Sprott Physical Trust. Is that the one you're referring yes, to? Yes, Sprott is one of them. Um, I can't remember if they have an exchange-traded uh, option there, but I know they have a mutual fund, which which is backed by physical gold. How are you balancing out your, your portfolio allocation? Because I know for the most part, you know, with gold miners being in this brutal bear market, most of the companies out there... Um, perhaps minus, you know, the gold standard, Franco Nevada, not many gold companies issue out a dividend. Um, so how do you balance that part of the strategy? I, to be frank, I'm not really exposed that much to gold or to commodities right now. It's a very small percentage of my portfolio, um, including all my commodities exposure. I think I'm looking at less, maybe about five-ish percent um, exposed to commodities. Okay. Um, as it pertains to oil and gas companies, I was curious to know what your thoughts were, because I know in the last few months we've had you know, these major companies, these, these really large blue chips like ConocoPhillips and Kinder Morgan, and you know, because of this unforeseen bear market, they've been forced to uh, slash dividends. You know, for a lot of people in the community, that's kind of what you would call a cardinal sin because with the dividend growth, I mean, one of the, the key components is growth. And when you're cutting dividends, that's not what most people are signing up for when they first invest in these companies. Um, does that cause you to 
reassess the the strategy or is it kind of an opportunity to load up more aggressively because you know when a company is forced to cut their dividends it could be a sign that the company is actually starting to enter cheap valuation yeah good good question again i think the once a company gets to a stage where they've cut their dividend the worst is almost behind them if not already behind them Uh, that's why you tend to see almost a couple of percentage points of rally as soon as you have a dividend cut announcement. Um, if you were nervous about it holding a company and wanted to sell it, sell it for a dividend cut, the time has already passed when the actual dividend cut occurs. So I went through my first dividend cut in my portfolio in December with Kinder Morgan. And I realized that, well, the worst is over. And looking at the cash flow statements and the balance sheets, with the dividend cut announced, the company was going to be fine over the course of the next few years. It's too bad that it, companies have to get to a stage where they have to cut dividends, um, but you have to you have to realize the signals that are sent from the company before that happens. So one of the things that come to my mind is, for example, Chevron. Chevron has did really well for all these years when oil was up, and once the oil prices crashed. After a few months, first thing they got rid of was the buyback that they had on their shares. So that was your first signal that things are not so well, but things were still okay for a while. And as soon as they released the 2015 annual statements, I had to take a good close look at their balance sheets to realize what was going on because it almost had gotten to a point where, well, they might have to do the unthinkable and actually cut their dividend this year. But so far, things look okay. Um... I think oil price has recovered a little bit, if I remember correctly. But I think oil prices need to go a little bit more higher for these companies to actually survive and do well over the course of time. In my case, I'm on the upstream segment. Um, The only company I'm invested in right now is Chevron, and it's a pretty small position. I think I own just 20 or 30 shares. But I think a better play for the energy segment is going with the midstream operators, um, mostly pipeline operators, which is where most of my investments are. And I think they're great for cash flow. So companies like Kinder Morgan and the other one I own is Intrapipeline, which is a smaller player here in Canada with some exposure in the U.S. Uh, in the terminal business. But other companies such as Enbridge and TransCanada are all doing really well. They just raised their dividend last month. So I think... Midstream players might be a better way to operate in these, um, to invest in the energy business. So you made a good point with Chevron and how it's important for investors to kind of review the statements and the annual reports and that kind of thing. What would you say to kind of the more retail investor, let's say somebody who buys into the Chevron story because of their track record and, uh, you know, 25 plus years, their status as a dividend aristocrat? What would you say to them if, you know, the signs are kind of pointing in the direction where a dividend cut, you know, could be, I I wouldn't say imminent, but it's definitely a possibility with a stretch balance sheet where basically you've cut down on buying share buybacks and you have taken on debt in the past to kind of fund the dividend payout. And you're also, you're selling off assets, kind of fire sale prices to raise more capital. Those are all kind of, you know, warning signs to the investor. But if you're retail, is this something that you want to be proactive with regards to to kind of avoid another potential conical phillips or kinder morgan or is it something where you rely on on the history and just you don't want to overreact because you know that this is a blue chip and oil will recover eventually 
Well, I wouldn't want to say oil will recover forever. I mean, we are moving towards a world where we will be relying less and less on oil. So my long-term view is oil will might be a bit rocky um, in the short term. Will will do fine in the medium term. It'll recover quite well, in, I think. But over the long term, I think oil is probably looking at the way coal is looked at right now, which is it might be on the way out in, in the next 50 years. So I think eventually I want to move um, into a position where I take advantage of those systemic shifts in the whole system. Do you see a bright future in perhaps something like lithium with kind of the electric vehicle revolution that Tesla has started? Um, that's something which I'm, uh, I've been thinking about. I looked at lithium company. Um, I think there's a Chilean company is doing pretty well in, in the commodity bust which is more concentrated on the lithium extraction and mining. I don't know if that is the best option for investing in commodity aspect. I'm still researching into that. The other aspect of investing in the, instead of looking at energy businesses, is to probably look at the renewable energy business, which is, so the renewable energy does not directly fit into the energy GICS classification. Um, so I think you'll have to look at either basic materials or technology. So I think you have to find the right portfolio mix there uh, if you want to diversify and take advantage of that trend. When you say renewables, does this point in the direction of kind of solar, wind, hydro, geothermal? Yeah, yeah. Any companies you like in that sector that you think are emerging and will eventually be a good dividend growth candidate? The one company I'm looking into right now is, is a company called Brookfield Renewable Energy Partners. They pay a really hefty dividend. Can't remember exactly how long they've been growing their dividends. Some of the other dividend bloggers have been buying it for the last few months, and it sort of caught my eye. The So I've been kind of been interested in that company. There are other companies too, such as solar manufacturers or the yield co-companies, but I think solar is still going through its growing pains where companies are going bust and new ones are coming along. I think there are some companies which are more established, such as First Solar, which has a huge investment from General Electric. And I think they have another yield company or what they call Yield Co uh, in partnership with Sun Power called uh, 8.3. So I'm trying to evaluate if these are good investments. I still haven't made up my mind. I still have a long way to go in invest and in researching these companies. It does seem like we are at the very early stages of the whole renewables game. And who knows, maybe this could be an up and coming sector in the future that dividend investors kind of flock to. Um, yeah. With that said, how do you stay kind of a step ahead of, you know, where the market is and where the future trends will be because it's all too easy if you're just getting started with dividend growth investing where you want to just buy the the solid companies with the strong history but somebody could have done that with kodak or something and you would have had to have seen the writing on the wall where a certain technology or industry is starting to get phased out and you never want to get caught kind of in that environment where you're investing in a company that doesn't have the longevity Right. Yeah. So that's, uh, again, that's a very tough position to be in. So first of all, investing in emerging industries is hard to begin with because they don't have a track record. But on this, at the same time, you want to be investing in these companies, which 
are going to be the big players in the future. So it's I know it's a really hard problem for dividend investors because they don't have the track record and most dividend investors look towards history for some sort of like a reputation or any sort of uh, track record. But you don't have that with new emerging market and emerging industries. And the problem is that's just the reality of how things are working out, especially um, in the tech industry. You have new disruptors who come up and just disrupt the whole entire industry. So you have, as you have more technological developments in solar uh, and wind systems, you have better efficiency, better storage systems. And one of the problems that is causing is has a knock-on effect on the utilities business. So companies in companies in the utilities sector are starting to see the effects of these businesses uh, where people are starting to go off-grid or at least want to go off-grid. Um, I know they still don't depend completely on the residential market. A big part of the utilities business is uh, industries and commercial market. But we've also started seeing uh, tech companies or all these other companies where they have their own solar farms or wind farms and investing in these companies. So it's 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 a tough world, um, and it is it is hard to identify early risers in these in these fields. When it comes to overall asset allocation, do you have a kind of hard and fast rule of basically how much to allocate to each sector and um, how many stocks to own in total? Because I know some people. They don't want to go over, for example, 20 stocks because in their mind it would be kind of essentially recreating an ETF um, and then other investors, um, you know, maybe might not have a limit and they'll buy upwards of 100 stocks in, in all these different sectors. But some people would argue, you know, how are you going to have the bandwidth to kind of keep track of every single company and, and that kind of thing? So what, what's your take on all that? Uh, yeah, I don't really have a particular number in my mind. I I don't want to limit myself to, say, 30 or 50 stocks. Right now, I think I own about 30 stocks. But I also complement my investing uh, with my wife's portfolio, where we mostly go with ETFs. So I have exposure to broad market through my wife's portfolio. I think my portfolio in dividend growth investing and my wife's portfolio in using ETFs for broad market is a good complementary, um, trying to get the invest best of both worlds, essentially. So I guess you could say I'm a bit of a hybrid investor. As far as diversification across asset classes go, again, I try to keep it as, as close to each other as possible, but the way things work out, you'll never have equal diversification across different sectors. And right now, I think I have more exposure towards financials and consumer discretionary than other sectors. But if I see value in some of the other sectors, I invest more in those instead of selling out something which I've already bought. Is there any sector so, that you wouldn't sorry. touch? Not really. Um, I'm right. The only investment I'm kind of not very uh, crazy about right now is investing in bonds, which is completely different asset class. But in equities, um, I don't really have anything against any particular sector, although. Like I said initially during the podcast, companies in, say, the consumer staples uh, seem pretty expensive right now. Sabil, are there any tools that you use to give yourself an edge? I know some people like to use uh, this popular tool called Fast Graphs. Do you subscribe to any, any tools? 
Yeah, that's the one to one paid service I use called FastGraphs. It's a good initial screening tool, I believe. I I find it gives me a good visual representation of where things are and how things have changed over time. I find it's a neat, pretty neat tool um, just to get a quick sense of how things are and where things will go in the future if things grow at a certain rate. But I don't base all my decisions based on that. Um, I still go through my whole criteria of going through and looking through annual reports, all the presentations, data, and looking through the balance sheets and financials and everything. What's your outlook for 2016? I think 2016 is going to be an interesting time. (laughs) Uh, There are plenty of uh, dark clouds, I should say. Things are looking kind of rocky. There's been a lot of signals sent from the bond market, the commodities market, and uh, even some of the companies are in people, what people like to call earnings recession. So earnings are shrinking in a lot of these companies. So I think we might be, we might see more bad than good this year. My outlook for this year is to try and accumulate as much cash as, cash as I can uh, so that I have some cash ready to invest. So you think cash is the prudent place to be in 2016? That's um, that's interesting. I actually took on that view even um, 2015, by middle of 2015, when I saw, uh, well, basically in my eyes, I, I looked at the, the overall indices and they looked to be running out of steam. So at that point, I actually switched mostly cash position. Yeah, I think that's a good call. Um, it's I, I wouldn't sell all my... Um, positions in, in that I've built in my portfolio over the years. Um, but instead of investing right now, I'm just sitting tight, waiting for better opportunities. As they say, trying to wait for the fat pitches. Sabil, any last thoughts for readers and listeners? Well, I think we've uh, discussed some really good topics today. Um, I hope everybody uh, enjoyed that podcast. Uh, and Jay, thanks again for inviting me for this podcast. Yeah, I'd just like to leave with the thought that investing is a great way to achieve financial independence. And uh, all you need to do is dedicate enough time and read, read, read. There's enough literature out there and try to understand as much as you can and take those right decisions to reach the financial independence. Sabil, if listeners want to get in touch with you and learn more about your story and your blog, what's the best way for them to do so? Well, I have a contact page on my blog, uh, Roadmap to Retire, so anybody can use that. I'm also very active on Twitter, at Roadmap to Retire, so drop me a line anytime. Sabil, thank you so much for your time. Thanks again.